One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high performing habits, and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture, lessons are self-paced, and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. Check out the website on www.warrioru.com.au. That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor, and then our guest. Just when you thought you didn't need another jacket, along comes the Kill Capture Pathfinder jacket. I could bore you with all of the Spec Ops design features, but what you really want to know are the benefits of owning this piece of tough luxury. Well, you'll walk into any room and immediately dominate it. If you're wearing it for business casual, you'll close the deal. Wearing it to a sporting event, and your team's gonna win. It's light, so you can pack more things in your grab bag, and it's tougher than you are too, which let's face it, that's pretty cool, because not much else is. It comes in a military-grade Pelican case and has a tracking beacon included, because your nemesis is gonna try and take it from you, and you'll wanna monitor that. It's a jacket of choice for Mad Dog Mattis, the actor, Dan McPherson, Nick Warner, the former head of ASUS, and I've got one too. Go to the site, www.killcapture.com, and use the coupon code Team Australia, all capitals. You'll love the after-sale service, the quality and the styling of this limited edition special operator jacket. I wear mine with jeans and a t-shirt for the weekend rides of my Norton Commando. Occasionally, with a dress shirt, pants, when I go to tequila bars. I'll be wearing it to this year's book launch too. Pick yourself one up today. That's www.killcapture.com. That's capture with a K. What's it like being married to Emily Sky, man? Like a million people want me to ask you that, so I might as well just go straight off to that. Name, believe it or not, she'd probably have uh, words probably not so positive to that effect that I haven't sort of done, you know, done the whole engagement thing and the marriage thing. Uh, you know, it's funny because because we joke that we're more married than most married people. You know, we've been together now yeah. for like almost 10 years. We've got a daughter together. We've got businesses together. We've got, you know, we've got so much together that – it's uh, we're, we're more married than most married people. Yeah, those, there's all these people know. like, hey man, you need to ask him what's it like to be married to like, you know, this Instagram okay. influencer. Um, all right, cool, we got that covered. So you got big shoes to fill, dude, because this podcast is going to come out the week before the podcast with Jocko Willink. Yeah. Are you up to this? Mate, always. What are you going to try and do? Are you going to try and out Jocko Jocko? Like, I mean, hey. There's only one Jocko. I'll do me. Jocko can do Jocko. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty incredible, pretty incredible human being. So I love what the guy does. I love the content that he puts out. I love what he's about, and, and he's just crushed me. You know. Yeah, so he's pretty. Something that I look, look, like to look to for a bit of inspiration. Yeah, I just I, I love what the guy's about for sure. Which really is what we're all after, isn't it? It's that whole self development. You know, success. Um, happiness, fulfillment, you know, you can could, you could keep going on and on and with those sort of words. But at, at the end of the day, we're all just sort of trying to carve out our own paths and, and be happy and provide for our families and um, be fit, happy and healthy and all those things. Yeah, man. Uh, he's just one of those people that, for a lot of people, myself included, just gives you that little extra 
kick up the ass. I think when you need it. Yeah, hundred percent. For the most part, I like to think of myself as a pretty self-motivated person. I don't generally, for the most part, I don't do the whole motivational thing like you know the motivational speakers. I just it doesn't really do it for me. I don't feel like I need it. You know, if there is, if there ever was a person that definitely uh, would say things that uh, ring true to me, it would definitely be Jocko for sure. Yeah, I'm a massive believer that positivity is contagious. And that negativity is cancerous and someone like him is just, you know, uber positive and, and sees, you know, that term good, you know, just good. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. Yeah, something goes wrong, good. Yeah. And it's it's a common thing, like things mess up, things break, things don't work and you just you do what you got to do. But I think he's with that whole sort of the idea of good, you know, it's fucked up, good. So what? keep going, you know. He's been able to really um, articulate that better than anyone, I think. Yeah, I agree. So I promised you I'd send you through a um, sort of a running sheet for today's episode, and I didn't. <laughs> but, good, mate. but, you know. <laughs> Off the cuff. Hey, let's do it on the fly. No cuff too tough. So, Declan, you were a – well, why don't you tell me what you were? What was I? Shit. I was a former action guy in the Army very young. I was uh, 20 – was I 20? No, I was 21 when I joined. I finished high school and I had um, aspirations to go to university, which I did. I went to university for uh, about 12 months and did a the, the beginnings of a bachelor in software engineering. I, I, I don't regret not finishing it because at the time I was, you know, I was putting myself through everything. I was, I was putting myself through university, financially speaking, that is. I was putting myself through university, paying for all my courses, paying for everything. And I was working on the side too. And it sort of got to the point where it was financially was uh, just too difficult. University students are broke for the most part, but I just didn't want to be broke. So I think universities are dead, man. I think they're. I think they're. I think universities are dying. I think the whole concept of specialising in one area is, and I think they've got a monopoly on on what it is to think and education, and they're probably not the same as what they used to be. And now it's all short micro courses to upskill in an area. You know, yeah. I think we're seeing it. We're seeing a revolution. Yeah, I mean, you're able to pretty much effectively build your own degrees now, and I think uh, education, for the sake of education, is it's good. But is it a means to an end? Like, are you, you know, there's so much sort of evidence out there with the, the amount of say university leavers um, that finish a, a law degree that are struggle to get sort of meaningful employment after a law degree and accounts for that matter and you know the list goes on and on i, I don't I, I don't for a second look back and think that um yeah my life would have been really different if i'd stuck around all, all my peer group that i was in high school with went pretty much did the same degree and i think out of all of us that started which was probably you know almost you know half a dozen more no one actually finished everyone sort of like splintered off and did their own thing so yeah i did the university thing for a year um, then I worked some just odd jobs here and there and like farted around, didn't really do anything, went to TAFE for a bit and I was just, you know, I, I was I was lost, didn't have any direction. And then East Timor kicked off in 2000, uh, was it 2000? Yeah, close, 99, yeah. 2000, yeah. 99, 2000 kicked off. Uh, first deployment since Vietnam on, you know, a, a large scale anyway and I was just like, shit, yeah, I really want to. I really want to get involved in that, and, dude. You know, you're going to get some Somalia veterans, I mean, uh, oh, Somalia. Whole bata- was a bata- was a battalion group, mate. All right, anyway, yeah. crack on. So, uh, so I, you know, my my girlfriend at the time, who then became, I married her later. You know, we had the discussion, and you know, I said it's something I really wanted to do. So, I ended up enlisting in 2000 and did all my training and blah blah blah, and uh, went to first battalion. And I think I was at first battalion for about two months, and then I got deployed to Timor. And I very, very quickly realised that Timor was exceptionally boring, and nothing happened. And there was a lot of uh, jungle patrolling, looking for nobody. And it was, yeah, I was, I was sort of like, it, it took a bit of the wind out of my sail. And then, yeah, so I, I, I bounced around one hour for a couple of years. I went to the School of Languages for a year. I went down to Melbourne to Langs and learned uh, Farsi and Dari. Spent a year down there. That was really good. That was with a view to then get deployed, hopefully, to Afghanistan because Afghanistan was kicking off around sort of 2002, 2003. I, was, I did the aptitude testing. I was sent down there and, yeah, the, the idea was to come back to one hour and then get deployed. And as I found out by other people that were deployed was – 
they're all speaking Pashto and they're not speaking Farsi, Dari, no one's speaking that, you know. So that language was a bit of a, not a waste of time, but I didn't really use it until later in my um, deployments with um, the DEA when we were doing um, joint operations with the DEA um, many years later when their partner force was all Northerners who spoke um, Dari. So what was that, 2004, 2005, I did commando selection, past commando selection, and then pretty much from then up until 2000 and end of 2014, I was, yeah, I, I was in Alpha Company, Bravo Company, Charlie Company, Delta Company. I was in every company at some point or another. Um, and then, uh, yeah, finished up in 2014. What rotations did you, did you do through Afghanistan, Declan? I did, I did four, 10, and 15. And then I did Timor in 2006 as well, which is that like short notice thing where uh, Alpha Company group. Sorry, you missed out on rotation seven and thirteen, mate. The only ones that actually count uh, for anything. Hey, yeah, uh, hey, the only tough rotations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that brings me up to pretty much the end of my army career, I guess. So yeah, 2014 when I when I finished up, and you know, I did did some time in the tag and did some you know time in the, in the green rolls companies, and yeah, did pretty much a bit of everything at some point or another. Yeah, and what did you find with the with the rotations in Afghanistan? Like, what what positions did you hold so that the the young you know guys and girls that are listening to this can can get sort of a sense for the sort of work that you were doing over there? Um, the, the rotations were very different. So between four and uh, fifteen, they, they, they were like you know they were they were worlds apart in terms of what we did. The the first few rotations were basically just getting in a car with the entire company and driving out looking for fights for lack of a better very little was known about the 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 areas i guess the outlying areas especially around tk outside of orisgan into kandahar and helmand very little was known because there wasn't early early days in the war so my first rotation with the alpha company we basically we just spent i would say 80 percent 90 percent of the time outside of the wire long range patrols 30-day patrols where we would just drive around and we'd have targets along the way where we'd, you know, we'd drive to a VDO, harbour up, wait for night, walk in, knock on somebody's door or blow in their door, whichever we chose. And then, you know, a lot of the times they were dry holes, which was basically nothing on target. Um, and we did that night after night for like 30 nights. And then we'd go back and we'd refit and have a bit of a rest. And, you know, that would be a few days. And then we're up and go out again. Pretty much did that for about four and a half months, I think. Yeah. Classic disrupt operations, you know, yeah. large large force over a wide area. They don't know where you're going to show up. Um, any and it could be anywhere within a hundred kilometer radius, which keeps the keeps the enemy sort of on their toes, and they have to move from safe house to safe house, and then they pop up above the ISR threshold. So it's a you know pretty uh, pretty standard drills for an SF unit, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you drive out somewhere, you park the cars, and then you might walk 10, 15 kilometers to target. Um, through the night and walk back and then pick up the cars and the first thing in the morning drive for another few hours you know very very little sleep like you you just get you catch sleep where you can it's the best job in the world oh yeah it was good i mean you know there's 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 stories of guys basically stacking up on the door hallucinating because they were so exhausted well i mean grip it grip it no explode red bull and and um pringles will do that mate oh just fueled by caffeine and red bull and and uh rippets and that, that was pretty much it so that was that was five. What was your job though, mate? On on that rotation, I was, in, I was in PHQ in the first one, so I was an echo. So I was just basically like a dog's body. I would I would go, you know, I'd, I'd do some jobs at PHQ, then I'd slot into an assault team for another job, and then other jobs. I'd yeah, you're just all over the place. And that's generally the job that you give the the fucking new guy, right? Get the new guy, chuck him in as echo, but he he learns everything. Get a lot to do with radios. Got a lot to do with the weapon systems. Yeah. Yeah, because I, uh, I I came in, I was I blew up my knee pretty bad on reinforcement cycle. So I was sort of right at the end of reinforcement cycle when um, I had a really bad knee injury and I had to have like pretty much a full reconstruction and yeah, it was it was pretty messy. I sort of I came into Alpha Company like a week or so before Timor flared up and then we went to Timor and then we came back and then pretty much geared up and went straight to straight to Afghanistan. So the teams that were kept in, in Timor pretty much rolled straight into Afghanistan, very little change. So, yeah, I just pretty much, as a platoon, went from Timor to Afghanistan. All the positions were pretty much standard. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the, the time in PHQ because I got a really good appreciation for everything. 
Yeah. Got to see the other side of it, whereas the guys in the in the teams would would obviously see their side, but I was seeing a lot of the other side too, which is good just for you know to have an appreciation of what goes on. Uh, I guess at the sort of you know the higher levels. Then the next rotation. Uh, so ten was I was in an assault team for ten. A mixture between sort of vehicle mounted ops, and that's when the helos started coming online. Do you, what was your role on the team, mate? What what job? Uh, I was I was a scout on ten, and uh, Dems. I was I'm a Dems guy, so I was scout slash Dems. It was a, you know the first part of the rotation kicked off with a lot of long vehicle mounted stuff again, um, and then the helo started to come online. We were working with uh, who was it? I'm just trying to remember now. Some of the uh, Australian helos came online, like the Chinooks. We started getting some of the Marine assets come online, and some of the uh, Army uh, helo assets that were TK based coming online too. You know, up until that point, uh, yeah, it was all it was all vehicle mounted stuff. There was very very little helos. That was a good rotation. The Schnooks from Five Ave, they don't get much credit, but those dudes, man, some of the places that those fuckers put us in yeah. on my rotation, on on uh, on especially on rotation thirteen, um, you know, had to be seen to be believed. Yeah, they were really, they were really good. I mean, I remember one time where we got inserted into a, we had a mission in Chora, um, and uh, we're doing sorties, so we weren't inserting as an entire sort of company group. We were in so we were, we were it's in like you know a, a platoon minus at a time, and it was I think we we're doing three sorties, and um, I was in the second one, and um, on the way back, two of the uh, two of the uh, helos were just on the way back. You could see all the fuel just pissing out of them because they'd just been shot up on the way in, um, and then we sort of all just you know as you do when you you, you got bump plans, so you just bump around the aircraft, and but yeah, those guys would. Um, it was fun. It was something that we learned very, very quickly. Uh, the more helo stuff that we did was uh, quite often the helo elements didn't want to land where we wanted to land. Like we would say, we want to land fucking right here in the middle of the bazaar, and they just go, uh, "No, not happening. We're going to offset five k's away, and you can walk in." Whereas, yeah, the Australian pilots would just be like, "Where do you want to go? Here, bang, okay, sweet, we'll put you there." So they were really good like that. Yeah, we had we got picked up by a couple of helicopters on my second rotation in a, in a dust storm and we were being pursued by the Taliban down this valley. And, like, they may as well have been running on the back of the aircraft with us. They were that close. And we ended up, the other platoon ended up leaving a, um, you know, a quad bike and a whole heap of shit because they just could not get it onto the helicopter fast enough to get out of there. And then an RPG went over the back ramp as they got on. It's like, it was almost like getting your ass kicked all the way onto the helicopter and then, and then the dust closed in and then the mountains were the problem, you know. So yeah. it, some hairy, hairy moments, to be fair. Yeah. No, they were great. They were really, really good. Yeah, good dudes. That was, yeah, that was 10. So it was a mixture of that. But 15 was when it sort of really ramped up, I think, when we started doing the, um, the joint operations with DEA. That was like, you know, theatre-level assets. Pretty much every target that we did, something happened. There was something because uh, we did a lot of the Nexus targeting, the leadership slash drug manufacturer um, generally speaking when you go into a drug lab the Taliban want to protect their money making assets so they're going to you know they're going to have things in place to protect those so that was a really that was a really really sort of um, that was a really busy rotation we would do you know two or three missions in any one day we'd you know bunny hop from target to target do a mission at 8 o'clock in the morning and then the helos would just would just bump from target to target and do that throughout the day my team was a we, – we were a, a partner team, so we were partnering with the local um, – the SRT, the special uh, response teams that we were trained up. So we did – we that was – that was I guess that was a good thing about that rotation too because we were working closely with the partner force, training them to a standard where they could come out and provide a, a level of capability with us. Yeah, but it was really – that was really the, the, the age of the uh, – the vehicles were sort of put in the sheds because the ID threat was just too big and it was all helo stuff. Although we did we did drive down to Helmand and we blew up a couple of cars on the way. Um, uh, luckily for, you know, the, 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 the Bushmasters are such an incredible vehicle. We had a, a couple of injuries, but no real serious, serious injuries. They are amazing. They're just, yeah, they're, they're the best. I mean, if we, if I guess as an Australian contingent, if we didn't have the Bushmasters, the, the death toll from Afghanistan would have been exponentially higher. Agreed. Those things are just incredible. Totally agree. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because remember when we first started rolling in Afghanistan, everyone was about the uh, open top, 
the SRVs, LRPVs, fucking wind in your face, sun in your hair. Lawrence of Arabia, 50 cow machine guns. That was awesome. They were good. But, I mean, there was no IED threat either. Yeah, that's right. But as soon as cars started getting blown up, it was like those bushies, they, yeah, they really... I've got, to give it, I've got to give it to Army. And I, I know the person in particular for 2 Commando Regiment or um, actually 4-Hour Commando at the time, I know the person in particular that, that pushed hard to change to Bushmasters. Um, I can't, can't mention his name yet. You know, talk about, talk about Agile. Like it was, it was only – it was fast. It was a matter of six months before they went, no, nah, we're going to change from this to this and we're going to change the way we do business. Yeah, it seemed like a pretty quick pivot from my perspective. Obviously, I didn't really know the, the back end of it, but what was going on, but we had a huge fleet of LRPVs and SRVs and then just basically with a click of the fingers, we had all these Bushmasters, which was really good because we still would roll out with, we'd still roll out with the LRPVs, like the mortar guys would have LRPVs just by virtue of the fact they had to carry so much shit. Um, but the pathfinding was done largely by the Bushmasters up front. Yeah, then it becomes a leadership issue, planning and perspective and being able to, you know, protect those LRPVs and, and, and the mortars and the like. And, you know, it's just, it comes down to, I mean, I've said it a heap of times, you know, basically experts talk about logistics, whereas novices talk about tactics, you know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was, that was probably the, the highlight of my career as far as an operation goes. 15 was definitely the highlight of my career because... I think professionally speaking, I tick that box of doing those type of operations. Yeah. So I guess like post that, that as far as a, a operational deployment perspective is concerned, I was I was happy that I was able to. That was sort of like the rotation that I was really hoping to get on. And although you know five and and uh, four and ten, four and ten were, were good rotations. There was there was something still missing for me um, professionally speaking that I didn't. And, and 15 sort of, you know, that, that sealed the deal for me. That was a really good one. And most memorable sort of combat moment, mate? Most memorable moment. I, th- I think something that sort of sticks with me was we, we did a series of operations up and down the Bagran Valley where pretty much every day we would, we would hit another spot in the Bagran Valley. And this, this, isn't, this, isn't a, um, this isn't sort of a, like a, a battle story, like a war story or anything like that. It was more so... One of the locals reaffirming, you know, it's easy to look back on Afghanistan now and see it as the shit fight it is. Like TK is a total shit fight. Like it, we may as well have never been there really because it's it's back to what it was before we got there. But I guess this particular incident sort of reaffirmed for me that what we were doing was actually making a difference. So we were doing a series of, of missions up and down the Bagram Valley Um we probably spent the best part of a month doing targeting operations uh, pretty much every day for, for a month. One of the very last ones that we did, and we flew into this town, and I, you know, I can't remember the name of the town now, and it was pretty much a, uh, we were on, my team was just outside of the bazaar, and the, um, the assault force was going into the bazaar to find a lab or some shit like that. And then we, were, we, we basically just knocked on someone's door and said, hey, look, we're here. We want to park ourselves up on your roof. You, you know, you, you cool with us doing that? And at that time in the, um, the the war, it was all about you know knocking on somebody's door, and you know you, you won't we won't kicking in doors and rushing in anymore because you know that would upset people, understandably so. And you know we went into this compound, and an older guy came out and goes, "Oh, you guys are Australians." And he was he was he was saying to all of us like, you know, we've been hearing about the Australians for the last sort of you know 30, 60 days. And we're like, we're keen to sort of, he was a, he was a doctor actually. And, and we're keen to sort of like get his, I guess, his uh, impression of what was going on. And he basically said to us, yeah, like the Taliban of a fucking pack of darkies because you guys have been kicking their ass every time you come in somewhere and, you know, blow up a drug lab or go here and do this and take this guy. And, that, you know, so that was, I guess, professionally speaking, having someone like that say, yeah, look, the, the, the Taliban are like, petrified of you guys that's why they're not here because the spotter network basically as soon as you leave tk they're on the you know they're on the uh the comms handing off you know as the aircraft are flying over they're coming your way they're coming your way and eventually you know it gets down to agron um as soon as they knew helos were coming in their direction they were just they just all scattered you know so that was that was pretty cool but i mean you know i think we all have we all have like near misses we all have that moment it's like you're standing here and then around hits there or around hits there you know we all have those sort of stories but i think that for me was something that was like okay we're actually 
we're actually doing something here. We're not just we're not just sort of punching tickets. We're we're making a difference. So that was that was quite satisfying. Yeah, man, that's cool. I sort of think that there's a. I've said it before that if the world knew what the Taliban were doing to their women and to the to the little kids there, we'd be there under a United Nations mandate, and we would have been doing completely different sort of operations. But um, only guys like you and I that have been there and seen that you know, would, would understand what that means? Absolutely. I mean, the, the stories that we were told of the horrific things that were, one thing that really, really sticks with me and like, fucking, I'll tell you what, this like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for the most part, not an emotional guy when I, oh, anyway, I'll get into the story. So we were going through a town, which was just South of, um, it was just South of uh, Gizab. And we'd been there before on rotation four. And I remember we went there on rotation four because we had a really big, um, contact in this particular town. So we went back in rotation 10 and we were patrolling pretty much, you know, it wasn't by design, it was just by the, the way it happened. Pretty much the same patrol route we did in rotation four, we got into a really big firefight. And I remember speaking to um, our platoon commander at the time and I said, hey, we were here. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here on Rotation 4. And I know exactly where you're talking about because yeah. I parked up there on that plateau that overlooks it. And yeah, someone, Valley, yeah, yeah. yeah, and someone pointed out the, the like sort of cave systems up the back of, you know, in the distance where you guys went trolling through there. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where, you know, one of the guys was sh- shot through his hip just like the day after we had this big contact in, the, in this village. So I said to the platoon commander, I said, hey, look, we were here, you know, a year and a half ago and it was a fucking busy day. Like it was a really big day, you know, multiple um, multiple contacts throughout the day, big firefight. So, you know, I told him about that and whatnot. And I said, like, the fact that we're here, like overlooking the Greenbelt, I I've, I really don't think there's going to be anyone there, like come – the morning when we decided to walk down sure enough that was the case which 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 i guess i expected but you know getting back to your point about the sort of cruelty the taliban had was well we're going through this um part of the village and there was this old guy who uh waved me over and uh he waved me over and he and he led me into the compound and there was this child probably shit probably like no more than four or five years of age in what appeared to be like a white sheet that was covered in like um, covered in like blood and uh, you know just different sort of like fluid and whatnot. It was you know it looked like a really f- fresh type of injury, um, covered like head to toe, right? So I, I screamed out for the uh, the medic to come running over, and the medic came over and whatnot. And the the story that sort of like unfolded was the turf came over and we, we had a bit of a chat, and the old guy was saying that um. So uh, a few weeks before, and this is a village that's out in the middle of nowhere. Like they're fucking on their own. Like they may as well be on Mars. You know, the, the, the closest medical support is like, you know, it, the closest decent medical support probably would have been TK. And that's a good three day, four day drive. If like in a reliable vehicle. So the Turk came over and they told us the story. Uh, a few weeks beforehand, the Taliban had come along and said, hey, we're going to come park ourselves in your, uh, in your compound. Uh, we want you to feed us. You got to feed us all. And there was like twenty of them or something. And this guy was like saying, "Hey, look, like it, winter's coming. I've got fuck all food as it is. I've only got enough food for my family. Like if you if you eat me out of all my food, I'm very poor. I'm not going to have anything, and my family's going to starve." And they're like, "We don't give a shit. Give us your food." And he was like, sort of being a little bit sort of uh, combative about the idea. So there was a fire burning in the middle of the you know, the, the compound at night and they just grabbed the child and threw the child on the fire because they weren't getting fed. And this kid's burns were like, wow. like I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Like, you know, to this day, it'll, it'll, it'll stay with me. This, this, the child was burnt from head to toe. The fact that um, 
Uh, it was a boy. The fact that this young boy was still alive. How was, was he alive? It was a fucking miracle. Like it was an absolute Jesus. miracle. Like I'm talking his 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 buttocks were fused together because flesh when it, it it melts and like his elbow his elbow had like in sort of like in a flex position because of the scar tissue and like couldn't walk. This kid was in the most excruciating pain. There's worse things than dying, huh? Oh, this child was terrible. And I was like, it was for me, it was like sensory overload. I'm like, I, I can't even imagine the pain that this kid's in. The, the, the medic at the time did like, you know, an amazing job and was basically like to this guy, like, beg, borrow, steal, whatever you do, get this child to TK. Because if you get it, to, if you get this child to TK, something will be done. Like they'll be, they'll, they'll fucking airlift the child somewhere to get, you know, to get treatment. This kid was screaming and like, I'm, I, I remember thinking like, what do I do? And I had a pack of uh, Skittles and, you know, I started giving the, the young kids Skittles and, and then all of a sudden the pain went away for that split second. It was just smiles. And I just thought, I guess the savagery that these people need to put up with. Um, and that's one of like countless stories, countless stories of, of cruelty. Yeah, man, it's, you're dead right. If it was under a humanitarian sort of mandate, yeah, it would have been definitely would have been under the UN beneficial. So why are you resilient then? So what is it that what what is it that's made sort of Declan Redmond impervious to let's say post traumatic stress from those sort of things like many of the commandos are? What do you, what would you put down? What would you put it down to at this point in your life anyway? <laughs> I would think that, and this is something that I've said to a few guys um, that. You know, while you're busy and while you're on operations and you've got things to like occupy your time, everything's sweet. Um, it's not until uh, things ramp down. I, you know, I knew that, that like back at you know two commander regiment and any sort of soft unit for that matter. We know exception. We know different to anyone else. But as soon as things start to quieten down, that's when the problems occur because guys, you know, they're not looking next. They're not looking forward to that next rotation. They don't have things on the horizon. They're just like. They're just existing. There's, there's no real sort of like, uh, there's no real um, nothing to work towards. So for me, a big thing was when I was getting out was I needed to have things that I wanted to achieve. I think guys fall into the trap of, uh, they don't have any goals. And, and I'll say this to a lot of people that the drive and dedication that you, uh, you had to get into the regiment in the first place, that's exactly repurposed, but that's what you need when you get out. You need that drive. You, need, you just need to focus it into something different. So for me, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm resilient. Like I would, I would 100% say I'm way more emotional now than I was when I was in, like for sure. And, you know, being a father definitely makes you more emotional. Definitely having things to work towards, goals, um, ambitions, keeping busy. Like I'm, if, I, if I'm sitting still for 10 minutes, then there's, there's an issue. Like I need to go do something, whether it be train, anything. So for me, just keeping busy and having um, goals and, and things that I want to achieve has been really, really like like uh, right on the top of the list of things that keep me sort of in a good mental uh, headspace. And also too, like, you know, I don't drink. I exercise like five days a week, like religiously. I mean, you know, the irony is one of the reasons I, the reason I got discharged from the army was, was medically. I had a spinal fusion, like a really bad sort of spinal injury. But Despite that, I still train. I still work within what I what I can do, and that's you know that has uh, really made a big difference to my mental state for sure. Yeah, and you're busy. I mean, the, the Emily, Emily's you know, Emily and your business, and then Force Element as well. Um, these projects. It's like me. I've got too many projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can you can find yourself being a, a jack of all trades, and you know uh, nothing gets done as it should but that's just that's i guess that's like any project any business nothing's perfect you know you just got to keep you got to do the best you can and and for me yeah like i mean i definitely have a lot of things on the go at any one time i used the the on combat and on killing books before before my platoon deployed and we we talked a lot about how we were going to prepare ourselves and try and inoculate ourselves from from events and I think when you can visualize certain events taking place, so we, we went over there, you know, to kill or be killed in some ways and, and we sort of accepted that. And if you have the right as a as a leader, if you have the right um, you know, mindset to be able to to talk to guys, to conduct the counselling after they've either taken a life or, or been in 
a terrible situation if you can do that counseling almost straight away and make sense of it so that whole sense making i think that makes that made our guys more resilient and and i think that's starting to show now that that we were more resilient as a group uh yeah definitely i'd also say too that the i think there was this like not stigma the first few and you, you probably you know you probably be able to wait in on this the first few rotations uh there was always this sort of stigma about like you know, you're just going to be tough no matter what. You're just going to fucking soldier on. Like, don't piss and moan. Don't be emotional, whatever. But as, you know, rotation after rotation and, you know, you have mates that are killed, you, you know, you have mates that are wounded, you see some pretty horrific things on the battlefield, that sort of, that can start to add up. And that whole notion of, like, just shut up and keep going and, like, don't show any emotion, like, that, that there is no value in that. And I think... Uh, the 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 more mature we became as a unit, the more I guess combat hardened, if if you want to call it that. After we would have a big day, you know, we'd have a we'd have a decompression where guys would just talk shit for a few hours, and you know, hey fuck, what about this man? That was pretty hairy, you know. And like you get it off your chest, and and after two, like you know, when when guys are um, you know, unfortunately, you know, we, we've lost a few guys over the years to commando, and having those. Uh, moments afterwards to sort of reflect and talk about it because uh yeah that's that's real and i would say that's probably for, for a unit that has done as much as two commando have to have the uh i guess the the amount of people that have that are, are, are resilient i guess if you were to say per capita or whatever um it, it's probably a testament to the fact that we have had that like you said you know you talk to your platoon and every platoon or, or team or, or section had their own way of sort of like counseling internally. And that's probably gone a lot towards the collective mental state of the yeah. guys that are in and, or, or, uh, or, you know, not, not in anymore. Totally agree. And, and I think my, my best weapon to be successful as a leader was emotional intelligence. Um, you know, and, and in particular being able to, um, I want to use the word manipulate, and I've I've been playing with this for a while in a leadership context because I think manipulate gets a bad rap because it in the dictionary it's got deceit quite closely to it. But in fact, you need to be able to manipulate your own personality. You know, you got to get around to all the guys' cars to see them and see how they're going after a firefight, and that means you've got to maybe you don't get to have a hot drink at you know when it's cold or whatever it is, or you don't get to laze around. You've got to manipulate yourself, and then you've got to manipulate to be able to appeal to their motivations so um but i think that emotional intelligence and then the ability to be able to influence and manipulate is probably i'm going to do some more work on this later on so that people understand what i mean more but as a leader i think that being able to almost pander to another person's personality and that's something that we, we got quite good at towards the end being able to it's almost dumb. Yeah, it's almost like being able to see something from another person's perspective every time they go through something. Yeah, it's just having that level of like emotional maturity and empathy to sort of like, and you know, whether it's whether it's manipulation, it's I think it's a it's a it's a good character trait of somebody who can connect with people on a personal level. And I think when you're when you're you know you, you, months you're spending months and months basically living in each other's pockets, um, you need to be able to. Uh, you know, have those connections with people, especially if you're a leader, because, you know, if you're a, if you're a good leader, your guys will do anything for you, fucking anything. Like if you're a shit leader, your guys will be like, fuck that guy. He can go fuck himself. I'm not doing anything, you know? And and there's a, there's a, how you, how you conduct yourself and how you sort of connect with your guys. Man, the thing I, the thing I learned very, very, very fucking quickly is a good leader in two commando regiment. Back in the day, I don't know about now, it might be different, but back then a good leader needed to be able to lead leaders because you have got 30 micro leaders, especially with the SFDRS guys because the SFDRS guys are selected into the ADF under the same auspices as officer officer cadets. So those guys that you're getting through the SFDRS crew, most of those guys are going to call you out. You know, and so if yeah, you, and you know, generally speaking, a lot of those guys that were coming through were high achievers in whatever field they were doing before, whether they're academics or professionals. You know, we had guys like I, I remember my selection course was a guy who was a friggin' trauma surgeon or trauma doctor. He was working Gold Coast hospitals, like, um, you know, stitching people up on the weekends. Like, you know, we had other guys who were chemical 
the, they were lecturers at university for chemistry and like some serious like intellectuals. And, you know, here I am some fucking Mongo that's, you know, basically scraped through year 12, you know, just trying to sort of bash it out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Those DRS guys, they were coming through. They're just some serious high achievers for sure. What are, you, what are your thoughts on women in combat, mate? We talked about this like briefly the other day and uh, it, it, it's, since we sort of like touched on it because we wanted to save it for here, um, I, I think the Defence Force, I think as a whole, I mean, we could talk about two commander, we could talk about special operations, but I think as a whole, like the, the, the Defence Force as a whole, like when you when you boil it down, the, the, the role of the military is to win wars. That's it, right? And if you can do anything that... Um, increases your capability to win wars, then do it. Like, absolutely do it with with everything you have. As soon as things start becoming a social experiment, I, I personally have an issue with that because, like, I don't care whether you're... I don't care whether you're a female. I don't care whether you're gay. I don't care whether you've fucking got pink hair and you wear clown shoes. I don't care. I could not give a shit. Like, if you add to capability and you can do your job really, really well, like, hey, have at it. I just think that like there's a lot of people at the higher um, uh, command elements uh, in defence that are really just feathering their nest for further political aspirations. And we live in a climate that's very, very much um, around political correctness and and um, equality, and not necessarily in the view of adding to capability, if you know what I mean. So as far as my my opinion of women in combat, like we had a female driver on rotation ten, um, she was a uh, she was a, a truckie that was uh, attached to us, and she was great, like just an absolutely fantastic driver. And she came out in all the missions with us. I mean, obviously she didn't go out on the missions, but she would drive the vehicle, maintain the vehicle, park it in our uh, videos. Like you know, we would we would be walking through the night to a mission, come back, and she'd have the cart like just incredible like really really and, and you know and i can only speak for what i've experienced with with females in, in various roles we we toyed with the idea there for a while with um what were they called what do we call them uh they were like liaison teams we would yeah, bring them the in fist options. was it the fist yes mm. team pink i think we, we nicknamed it um and they were all that that capability i think was like a fantastic idea their choice of people to fill those roles was or to the point where um, infiltrations would be seriously put at risk because of you know we, we would have members of, of the team basically peeling over on a on an infill. So as far as you know women in combat go, I'm all for it. Like hey, if you want to get in there and, and get after it, like I'm all for it. I just at the expense of capability though. If if it becomes like and we, we went over this sort of briefly the other day as well with with standards if. If standards are met, if you've got if you've got people that are assessing standards that have agendas that don't want women there, well then you're always going to have this case of moving goalposts and creeping excellence and and you know like oh my selection was harder, yeah, I'm going to make the selection the hardest selection ever just so they don't get through, or I'm going to make this you know infantry uh, uh, course harder just because I don't want them to get through. If you get that, that's wrong. But if the standards are X and the people that are assessing the standards are true to those standards. And, and women can get through, fucking go for it. Like, I mean, you know, we, we used this example yesterday of the, um, the, the, the Australian girl who, who uh, she, you know, she's two-time CrossFit. Oh, Tia. Mm. What's his name? Tia. Tia Toomey. Oh, just a freak. Like, she's, she's, she's fitter on her shittest day than I'm on my best day. Like, she would... No, smoke. dude, dude, she's... Fitter on her shittest day than anyone in special forces on their fittest day, yeah, mate. She would smoke me in fucking any physical endeavor. Uh, you name it, she she fucking destroy me. But you know, you do realize that's that's a whole. There's a whole. There's a whole heap of women out there in the community that that are especially in the CrossFit community that would be as fit as any of the guys in the in the unit. I mean, we're not talking Absolutely. about two or three. We're talking thousands. And the other thing is, oh, yeah, sure. because SFDRS isn't, well, I don't think SFDRS is, isn't open for women, I assume. Or they're not marketing it right, if it is. Yeah. I know there was a big push there for a while with uh, women in the infantry and whether that, whether there's any truth to this, but there was basically a, a thing at recruiting that you're not recruiting any more uh, male 
recruits for infantry corps anymore. Um, yeah, that, that's true. That. that that was a that was a real thing, and and it was a, it was because they they were trying to meet a certain um, I hate using the word quota, but um, they were trying to change the disparity um, between the the numbers, which I think you know it is what it is, but it still should be the best person well, this for the is, job. This is where I have an issue. This is where I have a really big issue. When you're talking about quotas, it's like is that adding to capability? Like, are you getting the best? That's a, that's a real serious problem, and I think that if they're ever you know. Or want there to be a high intensity conflict in the future like i think if we were to have another you know world war situation it would be like everyone would lose like you'd never want to see that but i think if there was ever a case where there was you know the infantry battalions were actually war fighting there'd been this years and years of uh, social experimentation to meet gender quotas or whatever it was well then you're going to fucking find out on the battlefield aren't you like yeah. you're going to find out like in a bad way agreed yeah yeah, interesting. So, but hey, yeah, like like you said, there's thousands of women out there, you know, the CrossFit community, for example, that would probably smoke, you know, some of the fittest guys in two commander regiment or any uh, SF unit for that matter. So, if you're if you're physically, I mean, there's roles in special operations where women would be like amazing, especially in uh, counterterrorism, um, anti-terrorism positions would just be like. Uh, an, uh, an incredible asset. Yeah, and what about green roll or black rolls, Declan? Which would you prefer, mate? I guess I guess both of them had their uh, had their uh, upsides and downsides. I guess um, I, I don't think there was one that I preferred over the other. The you know green rolls is 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 awesome because obviously you get to um, you, you get op- used operationally. I was fortunate to be in two commando when it was a really sort of high tempo, busy period. And we did, you know, numerous rotations of Afghanistan. Um, and there's, you know, there's also all those experiences that uh, that come with doing operational deployments, which are which are great. Uh, I guess the downside of that is that, you know, you're away from home a lot. You know, you, not only you're away from home for your, you know, the, the the period of your operation, but all the lead up training and all the courses and whatnot. So I mean. You can effectively be away from home for you know nine months of the year, ten months of the year. If you've got kids or whatever, it just obviously makes your life very difficult. But uh, I guess with black roles, professionally speaking, I mean your 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 skills as far as a, an assault is concerned really go through the roof because pretty much all you do day in day out is shoot. Is you shoot and you assault and you 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 do your dems days, you do your driver days, you you know you're up at the RFCR or the aircraft or, or the embassy or whatever it is you're doing, and you just constantly constantly refining your skills to get to the point where it's just you know as a team you don't even need to talk to each other anymore you're just going around doing what you need to do i mean that's good too because you've got a routine you know what you're doing the the trainings you know what what you're doing next week you know what you're doing the week after for the most part anyway and and yeah i mean i guess one of the things that you i think everyone who who wants to go down the special operations um route one of the things you want to do is is be be part of a unit that's you know whose whose prime task or one of their prime tasks is uh, hostage recovery. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's definitely something that's that bodes well on your CV uh, later on in life. And you know, all, all things aside, it's just a it's a it's a good thing to um, have experienced and be a part of a unit that basically. That's what they do. And what are you and Emily working on nowadays, mate? Um, well, we've got a few things. Like uh, we've got our digital fitness business, Emily Sky Fit, that we um, we uh, we work with uh, Fitness and Lifestyle Group, which is a private equity group. Um, we and that and that business is is subscription based business that does uh, you know we've got an app and training programs and meal plans and whatnot for. Uh, women predominantly we've got a cosmetics company as well james cosmetics and we do a lot of skincare stuff and eye masks and face masks and lipsticks and whatnot that we're working on and that's growing quite well that's been uh, going for uh, about a year and a half two years now i think um and that's going well and then um I've just started a, another startup, a, a sports nutrition company called Force Element Performance, with a um, a good mate of mine that I've known for a number of years, who's worked extensively in the um, sports nutrition space, um, basically as the uh, the operations manager of two other uh, supplement companies. So go on, give him give him a shout out. Uh, Nathan Jacobs, Nathan, Nathan Jacobs. Yeah, <laughs> so he's uh, he's he's been really the uh, I guess the engine behind Force Element Performance. He's the uh, He's the formulator extraordinaire who um, yeah, he's has pretty formulated. Passionate. Oh, extremely passionate and really, really knows what he's talking about. Really knows 
you know, when it when it's where the rubber meets the road, he knows the products, he knows the formulas. He, uh, I mean, he, he he's definitely got a lot a lot of love for this space. Um, so that's that's moving really well. We're we're happy with with how that's going. It's um it's in about forty retail locations at the moment, and they're growing each week. Uh, we're putting on more and more retailers. Um, the products that we're putting out. Um, I mean, obviously I'm biased because um, I'm one of the owners of the company, but they are really high quality. The the feedback we've been getting from people has been um, nothing but positive up to this point. So, you know, that's another thing that's just going to keep growing and and uh, and uh, you know, each each and every uh, day, week, month, it's going to get bigger and and better, and and we're going to try and make it the the best sports nutrition company we possibly can. I see that Jamie Skippen's one of the ambassadors. He's a monster. Oh, he's a big boy. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a big rig. Um, he's he's back playing footy now. He's um back in Melbourne, strapping on the boots to have another crack at, at footy. Um, fucked if I'd want to be running at him on a footy field. That's for sure. Yeah, can kick. Oh, can kick like sixty meter, sixty meter droppies. Like, yeah, just. I remember when I was playing footy back in the day when I was um, younger. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be flat out getting a, a torpy um, at fifty meters. Um, he's just, yeah, he just off two steps, banging him in at fifty meters. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, all right, hey Declan, we've had a few technical difficulties. We got through it. Um, it was it was good for me because I, I got to rehearse everything before having Jocko on the podcast. So thanks, mate. Yeah, you're, mate. Um, good, yeah. You're, you're the lead up to Jocko. <laughs> Yeah, no pressure. Thanks very much for your time, mate, and for being on the Warrior You podcast. And thanks, um, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, and all the best for you and Emily and and uh, and the new daughter, mate. And look forward to seeing more from you guys in the future. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, brother. All right, take care. Hey, gang. Have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment, and it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them. Truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some uh, great motivational content. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 